Built Not Born, episode 26. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Malik Harris. Malik Harris is the owner of the King's Corner Boxing Gym, located in Lansdale, PA. Malik shares his remarkable story of how he is transforming young kids' lives through the art of boxing. Malik works with kids struggling with disabilities such as ADD, ADHD, Parkinson's, and bullying. Malik shows them how to take the negative energy they may be experiencing and channeling it in a better direction. Malik was raised in the suburbs of Philadelphia by his mother and grandfather. Early in his life, Malik did not have a relationship with his father due to his dad's drug and alcohol abuse. Malik found himself in trouble when he was a kid and even spent time at the juvenile detention center at Glen Mills. Then Malik discovered boxing as a way to channel his energy in a positive direction. One day at the boxing gym, Malik was asked to help coach some fighters. At first hesitant, he soon realized he had a gift for teaching. Since then, Malik has been using boxing as a way to mentor kids who have any type of challenge they need to overcome. He has converted his two-car garage at his home in Lansdale, PA into the King's Corner Boxing Studio to provide one-on-one instruction for both youth and adults. When Malik Harris is not helping kids in the boxing ring, he and his wife are raising their 12 children seven of which are adopted out of foster care. Malik and I discuss his remarkable journey from juvenile detention center to boxer to trainer to foster parent. Malik shares why he believes idle time is the worst possible thing to give a child, why a combat sport like boxing is so beneficial for kids, and why everyone needs to find something that they love and just put their whole heart and soul behind it. Malik also shares what it's like to be at the dinner table with 12 kids, the amazing community service project called Momentum that he and his business partners are working on, and who he thinks would win if Mike Tyson fought Muhammad Ali both in their prime. That's a fight I want to see. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Malik Harris, owner of the King's Corner Boxing Gym, mentor to young adults, community leader, and one of the most energetic, positive people you will ever meet. And remember, life is built, not born. Malik Harris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Excited to speak with you. Malik, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I'm Malik Harris and I'm a boxing coach. I teach kids and adults different strategies about boxing, about life, but I use it through my boxing program that I've developed. I've been doing boxing for about 20 years. I've been teaching for about the last six and the last couple of years, I've actually taken it on pretty heavily. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Penland, so right down by Wissigan High School area. If you think back to maybe, say, 10 years old, I find that a very formative time in people's lives. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, If you took an average night at the dinner table around your home, who was there? What was going on? My mother was there and my grandfather. That's it. Your mother and your grandfather. So my mother, Carolyn, she's a wonderful woman. Uh, I lived with my mom, my grandfather. Uh, my father was an absent father during my childhood due to like drug and alcohol abuse. So I grew up with my mother, a single mom, and my grandfather. We stayed with him until I was about 12. And then we moved up into the North Penn area, my mom and I. But it's been her and I rocking our whole life. But at 10 years old, it was us three at the table. What's the most vivid or powerful memory of your childhood? The most, the hardest thing, or I'd say the most vivid thing probably was my mom just seeing her try to raise a young man in the childhood, uh, growing up without a father, now being a father. Um, you don't realize how hard that really is. My mom would tell me things like, this is so hard and I'm trying so hard and you don't get it. You don't understand. I look back now, I really understand what she was talking about. Tell us about your dad, what type of relationship you, you may have had with him. So my father, when I was growing up, he was just, a, I have a stepbrother um, and my father just was a product of the streets. He wasn't around. He actually used to do some triathlon stuff and pretty much got involved with some guys and was doing really well at one particular point in time, but got caught up with some Percocet and some pills and started taking them to get addicted, moved on to heroin and drinking. That side of my family pretty much um, had drug and alcohol abuse and he just got caught up in that. And for my entire life, he was in and out and I really suffered a lot from not having him be around, but that was just life that I had. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Why do you think some kids in that situation gravitate towards that and other kind of go the way you do, a more positive path? Where's that pivot point? Why do some kids go one way and some kids go the other? I think part of it too, for me, is I was the kid who I actually went the wrong way first. So I spent two years in Glen Mills. I was in and out of juvenile detention centers. I was a very, very person who suffered a lot from not having a father. And when I say I suffered a lot, it was something that I yearned for. I missed a lot in my childhood. And I think just doing that, and my mom pretty much had this saying that life is a better teacher than her. And she always tried to teach me something. If I didn't listen or I didn't pay attention, she would say, listen, you don't got to listen to me. Life's going to teach you better than I can. I'm trying to teach you the right way. So I think the kids go different ways just based upon how their parents allow them to experience things. A lot of times as parents, we either overcompensate or undercompensate. And I think there's like a happy medium somewhere in there. So I think when parents, like single parents, single moms, some are overly aggressive and they make sure kids go the other way, or sometimes they're not aggressive enough and then they just have too much time. And I think time on kids' hands, I mean, today's day and age, time on your hands is what gets you in trouble. Idle time is the worst for children. Two things there that you just said. One, the parents, you mentioned they're either too much or they're not enough. Either they're snowplow parents and they're literally filling out their child's college resumes. I'm like, this is for your child to do. I've never met a kid that whose parents filled out their college application that, that graduated from college. Like, I've never seen that happen. Secondly, you have parents that are not involved. Like, where do you think that happy medium is where you got that snowplow helicopter parent or that just unengaged, not even seen parent? Where's that happy medium? So I, I think the best strategy or which I'm trying to, you know, do and learn myself is that I just try to raise my kids the way I want to be raised. And then I've learned to actually listen more than I used to. Instead of just saying what I want, I listen to what they want. It's a, it's funny, a little quick story. So obviously um, I've adopted seven children. Um, I have five of my own. So I have a total of 12 children I've raised. So my wife and I, we extended our family to 12 from our five biological. And one of my children one time told me, He said, you scream my faults, but whisper my praise. And it hit me in a different way when he said that to me, because it let me realize that he's, you never praise me when I'm doing great, but when I'm doing wrong, you make sure I know about it every single time. And that hit me so hard in my gut 
because I realized it was something that I really was doing. Your kid is doing something great. And you're like, oh, good job. Almost like you expect that. When they're doing bad, you're screaming top of your lungs, they're grounded, everything. So I learned a lot from that particular statement from him. And I've taken that and have tried to go over my kid and say, listen, this is my advice. This is what I would do. There's a fork in the road. You get to the fork in the road, you go two ways. You're one step away from failure, one step away from succeed. That's it. There's no other way about it. You can take go left or go one way or another, which way, way you go, that's where it's going to be. You said some powerful things there. First off, you wanted to raise your child the way you wanted to be raised. And then getting back to so your 12 children, you said five biological, seven adopted. Correct. Wow. What, when did you and your wife decide to start adopting it, it, with, with five kids? How did that happen? So, well, so my, my wife, when we got together, my wife had three and I had one. Okay. Um, and my, I have a daughter, a biological daughter. My wife had two daughters and a son. So I'm the last son of my father. So my last name stops with me. My daughter, obviously, if she gets married, she changes her last name. So I had a lot of pressure to have a son, have a child. My wife, when I got with her, tubes were tied. So we had to get her tubes untied. We had about six miscarriages prior to trying to have our son. Wow. It was a nightmare. We literally went broke. We spent $10,000. We took our account in a negative, trying to actually do fertility, could, could not get her pregnant. In the meantime, I had a family member who actually was on drugs and she needed help with her kids. And they were going to put them in foster care. They asked us to take these children in and raise them while she was going through what she was going through. I said, absolutely not. I will not take these kids. This is insane. I will not take them. But my wife went behind my back and told the judge that she would take them. So I come on one day from work and there my two cousins are. And so they were there and we raised them for about two years until she got herself together. And then they went back. And when they went back, my wife and I were in a racial relationship. So they wanted us to stay on as foster parents because they can send any genre of kids to us, a black kid, a white kid, Mexican kid, to help them with being able to send children of different races to us. And we lived in Montgomery County out of Philadelphia. So when they could take kids out of Philadelphia and put them with us, it took them out of that element. Because listen, let's be honest, if a kid's in Philadelphia, you're moving from South Philly to West Philly, he can get to wherever you got to go. They know the transit system. They know how to get places. But out here in Montgomery County, it's a little bit more difficult to get to where you got to go to. So that allows them to have a little bit more leadway with keeping the kids grounded. So we basically took them on. And then we started foster care. My wife had the opportunity of working with a, a little girl who they said um, was the worst case that ever come through DHS at that particular point in time. She was three years old. She couldn't walk, really talk. They knew she was on spectrum of autism. She had all these different problems. And two people recommended my wife to take on this child. So we took the child on. It was a nightmare. I'm not going to lie. It was the hardest thing ever in my entire life that I've ever dealt with. Because my son played basketball. We couldn't take her to like basketball games and things because the buzzer sound would drive her crazy. Any big noise or sound. So we were like in prison. Like my wife would go. I couldn't go. And I'm pretty much the leader of my household. But my wife one day came to me and said in the shower, she said, God told me if, if you keep her, then we were, you're going to get your son. And my wife doesn't talk like this, which is crazy. She never speaks in the spiritual realm. And I looked at her and she's, I'm telling you. And I'm like, no, you're going to take this child. She's going to go back. She's running our family. This is not what we signed up for. It's not fair to our kids, our family. I'm not doing this. And I was adamant about what I wasn't going to do it. She looked at me and she said, I promise you, if you do this, it still gives me the chills now. If you wow. do this, we will have a son. I will give you a son. Now, mind we have been through miscarriages. I'm like, this is not going to happen. And I'll tell you the honest to God truth. We kept her. That happened in November. And my wife got pregnant the five, the, in April, that Easter. She got pregnant with our son. And she got pregnant on 
the opposite side of her body. So her she was blocked on one side of her body. So basically, the sperm had to go up, down, around on the other side. So my son is literally one in a million because most boy sperm die off before they get that far. So I had a better chance of having a girl, but having a boy was really one in a million. And so we did that. We kept her. We had our son. And then while we were having our son, I want my son to have a, a brother. So we said, listen, we're already in the process. We'll adopt the kid out of foster care. And that'll be, we'll have a brother. So they called us and said, we got good news and bad news. The good news is we have one kid, but we have a brother with them. Will you take both? We're like, okay, we'll take both. At this point, we already had Samantha and we were doing a PLC, which is a permanent legal custody of another child. So we had two children already. We were taking care of in foster. Then we were having our son. Then we got two more children from foster care, a sibling group. And then a month later, they called us and said, we have another sibling group, another brother from that sibling group. Will you take him? We're like, okay, we got two of them, take three. So we took those three. So then after that, they called us and said, the mother's pregnant again with another child. Will you take her? And there was a little girl. So we're like, yeah, we'll take her. So we basically went through and we were adopting those four at the time. We were adopting Samantha, who was our other child at the time, and Tyler. While we did all that, we did everything else. The mom got pregnant again with another child. So that child, <laughs> she had that child. They were in foster care with another family. We opened our home up and thank God, after about eight months of that child being in foster care, another family, we were able to get him. We adopted him. So we have a certain group of five our, our family members and then two children we adopted are non-family members. So that's how we got the extra seven. That is incredible. You're, you and your wife's generosity knows no bounds. Oh my gosh. What's the most you've ever had around the dinner table of your biologic and adopted family? How many people were around at the same time? So we've had them all. Um, at the you had 12. Time. So you'd have all yes. 12 and plus you said you had 14 people and that's your family dinner. What's that like? Oh my God. It's a lot of, shut up, be quiet. Leave me alone. Give me that. Give me the ketchup. Stop. Mom, dad, put your cell phone down. Hey, we're at the dinner table. No cell phones. It's a lot of that, but it's pretty fun. Usually around the holidays, they're all together because some now are in college. So they're in and out now, but yeah, they're all over the place. And I actually have one of my daughters, actually one of my teenage daughters, she has a son now. So I'm actually even a grandparent. I'm young, but I'm actually a grandparent. They'll have a grandchild in the household too. Wow. Yeah. You are a young looking grandparent. Oh my gosh. Thanks for sharing that story. Uh, you mentioned another line that I, I just say as just trying to distill like leadership and wisdom and parenting. You mentioned your one child told you scream my faults, but whisper my praise. I find that so powerful. What goes to your mind when one of your kids say that to you? I realized as a parent that I was being the parent that I did not want to be. At that moment, it was probably one of the most pivotal parenting moments for a kid to look at you in your face when you're scolding him about something. He said that to me and it stopped me in my tracks. And I, I looked at him and I'm pretty a level-headed and I'm not a very emotional person. That put me in a very emotional state and I had to keep myself together and just take that one on the chin and then just realize that he was 100%. It was really hard to argue if your kid tells you, if you're going to have that much emphasis on what I'm doing wrong, then do the same thing when I'm doing right. But you have to have some balance. And I was definitely a person who didn't have the right balance. One of the ancient philosophers is Seneca. And Seneca said 2,000 years ago, don't worry about who said it, worry about what they said. It's paraphrasing. Don't worry about the author, worry about the message. And that's coming from a child. That could have came from like a, a president or Tony Robbins. That, that <laughs> saying, you scream my faults, whisper my praise. That is, that's some deep stuff that, that's really impactful. So I appreciate you sharing that story. I'll shift gears a little bit here. So how sure. did you get into boxing? My grandfather used to practice boxing back when he was younger. My dad's nickname was actually Rocky, which is funny. Of all things, he's, his nickname was actually Rocky. When I was growing up, I always loved combat boxing. And then as I got into my teen years, 
that aggression that I had towards my father, I wanted to show that aggression in, in different ways. I got into boxing and then I went to Glenn Mills and one of my counselors there told me, he said, if you could take that energy you have and put it and shift it in a positive way, you can do a lot with your life if you shift the energy. A lot of kids that get in trouble, to give an example, a kid who's who's a really tough guy on the streets and like a bully, right? Well, that kid can go into powerlifting or football and take that energy and transit it differently. A kid who can talk can be a motivational speaker for something. A person who's running and stealing cars, that person can be a track star, right? Like we take all this energy and all these athletic abilities or, or your personalities and we shift them to negative things. And when they told me to shift it to positive, he's like, listen, find something you like to do and put your all into that. If you like it, you wake up every day, you like it, then you do it. And my mom told me when I was coming out of Glen Mill, she said, find something you love to do that you would do every day if you were a billionaire. If you could do something every single day and, and don't get paid for it because that's what you love, that's your passion. And for me, that is boxing. I was boxing. I broke my ribs, showing off for some kids in 2006. And I had a guy come to me and pretty much ask me to train with him. And I'm like, I'm no trainer. I'm a boxer. And my wife finally said, sweetie, boxing days are over, baby. Like, this, 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 this is not there anymore. So I was helping this guy and not knowing I could be a coach. A guy asked me to come look at his fighters. And I came look at his fighters and we were in a ring. And I was like, hey, he's doing really good, but he's really uncomfortable moving to the left. And I got in and showed him. And then there was another guy there. I showed him some stuff. So a couple of guys were like, hey, you could really be a good trainer. And I'm yet and still, no, I'm, I'm a boxer. And one of the coaches came to me and said, you have an eye for this. He said, you, you have an eye for this. You really, really should look into doing some training. I think you really help out a lot of people. And I had a guy come to me after that, ask me what I trained with him. And I just said, yeah, I'll do it just for some fun. And I did it with him. And I, I loved it. Like I found my passion. It was being able to take like a pile of clay and, and, and the mold again to what I wanted to do. I had to figure out how to put that puzzle together. And that became something I love to do. I like to take the guy who is like, knows nothing uncoordinated, has two left feet and take that person and mold them into something. I have a big thing about constructing things. So I just use boxing as a construction to construct people. And it just it works for me. And it's been very, I've been very blessed so far. So you go from boxing around 2006, you had the opportunity to train. You're initially hesitant to say, I'm a trainer, not a boxer. Then you go and you start molding and crafting people. So how did you take that? And that great story they did on the ABC News affiliate in Philadelphia on you and, and uh, King's Corner Boxing. Now you're working with kids that maybe perhaps were bullied or had ADHD, as they mentioned in the news clip. How did you go to training kids? I was a child who actually, when I grew up, they would tell my mom that I couldn't read. So what they did back in the day was they would call me a Pictionary reader. So pretty much if you tell me something or show me something, I'll never forget. It. I'm like an elephant. I, I remember every face. Sometimes now older, I'll forget somebody's name, but I can remember a situation. So they called it a Pictionary Reader. And my mom was like, no, my son can read. And they would say, no, he's a Pictionary Reader. He can memorize everything. And as I got older, I learned how to read. So I was in classes with a lot of kids who had learned disabilities. One of my closest friends, a kid named Paul, it's funny, he had a learning disability. And I, I gravitated to kids like that because I realized that those type of children, they're left behind. They're not the cool kid in the class, but they have so much potential. Like I've never met a kid, and I could be using the wrong word when I say this, but I say disability because I'm in that same category as those children. So I say that with respect, with a, a disability or at a disadvantage. But if you ever look at them, they are the happiest people in the world. Right? They, they, they don't look at disability as being something against them. You can show them something. They're very receptive to what you're teaching and what they're showing them. And I just felt like these kids were in situations where no one was paying attention to them the way they should. That's me. I'm that kid. I'm the kid that if you would have known that I couldn't read, you put me in, in front of a bunch of people and had me read something. Now I'm at a disability. But at my personality being so, you know, what it is or so big or whatever, I will disguise it behind that. So now when you get kids now, I'm like, listen, 
every kid has a story. Every kid has a situation. So these kids that are being bullied, a bully, there's a reason why he's being a bully. He could be shown for some other kids. could be some things at home. You don't know. But that doesn't make them any less of a person. If a kid comes to me and say, hey, coach, man, you really helped me. That makes me feel great because I feel like I'm actually contributing. I'm actually doing something. I, I want to go down to someone that says he wasn't just here. He did something. I didn't do anything different. I just took on more responsibility than I had to. That's it. If I help a kid that has ADD or ADHD or Parkinson's, I'm not doing anything. That's I'm just taking on a situation that most people steer away from. I find it that the kids who people won't pay attention to, those are the kids that receive you the best. And I like to teach people things. I like to learn things myself. I like to study things. So when it comes to boxing, I just use my mentoring through boxing. That's just a gift that I found that I thought was the best tool. You said you get energized by serving and helping others. I don't think there's a better definition there of servant leadership than that. You were leading and you're leading by helping and serving and, and helping people become something they wouldn't if you were not around. So kudos, man. That is really cool. Thanks. Why do you think boxing is so good? It's such a positive influence to the kids that maybe that are being bullied or maybe have trouble focusing. Why is boxing so powerful? There's always a misconception of boxing. People think of boxing being this brutal sport, people getting beat up and all that. But boxing is so much about discipline and energy and releasing energy, right? When people are in here boxing, I'm like, listen, you're having a bad day. Is mom getting on your nerves? Okay, obviously you can't scream at mom. You can't yell at mom. You can't hit mom, right? But you can hit this. Take the energy and use it the right way. So many of us just use our energy the wrong way. When you look at a fight and someone gets into a fight about something, if you go back to the roots of the fight, 90% of fights start from words, which is insane. I always teach my kids, listen, if I can convince you to punch me, because of what I said to you, I beat you. Mentally, if I can convince you to hit me over, I don't care if I talk about your mom, your dad. If I can convince you out of your mind to take control of your mind by my words, you lost. You have no self-control, no discipline, no nothing. So I teach kids, you want to be in control. You write your own book. You're in control of you. Don't let anybody take it from you. So with boxing, we shift energy. My energy is their energy. I give you 100%, you give me 100%. And we go back and forth. And I think that that's how kids are able to transition that energy from negative to positive. What type of results have you seen in the kids that I box with you? So I'm teaching little kids all the way to adults, and it varies. But children, I'm teaching them, the bottom line is, if you're in a situation where there's 50 kids around and there's a kid coming up, and he's saying something to you and he wants to fight you. I want you to have the ability to be able to walk away with 50 kids around you. I'm talking about screaming, hit them. How much you have the discipline to be able to walk away from that situation and don't feel like you need to do something because the threat is not what's happening around you. The threat is if the person's really threatening you. If they're just talking to you, what does it matter? The kids, when they learn discipline, they're able to control themselves and they can actually defend themselves. Kids don't become bullies. If you ever notice a kid who's in martial arts or any type of combat sport, teach them a discipline. You need to have discipline, right? So there's always going to be pressure, right? And pressure on jobs, pressure with your parents, school, tests always pressure and pressure bust pipes. So I'm teaching kids the confidence of saying, listen, you need to be able to walk away from a situation no matter what's happening. And teaching kids through boxing is saying, listen, if you didn't know what you were doing, then you would do something dramatic, right? If you're the show up for your girlfriend or someone around, you're going to pick up something, you're going to do something. You're going to throw something at them. You're going to, and then you're going to be in big trouble. And now you made that decision to do something to them. And now you're in big trouble. I give kids an example. One time my wife and I were walking um, downtown and a guy was staring at me and I was looking at him. Well, we're walking hand in hand. And he looks at me and says, what are you looking at? And at that particular point in time, I had two choices. I could have said, I'm looking at you and cause a confrontation. But ironically, I was looking at his outfit. He had a really nice outfit on and I wanted to see what the outfit was. So I looked at, his, I looked at him and said, you have a really nice outfit on, man. I, I like that. It's a really nice outfit you got on. 
And he jaw just dropped and it was priceless. And then my wife, he did when we walked on because he was looking for a problem. Now my, he doesn't know me. I don't know him. He could have a gun, a knife. I could have whatever. But I just diffused that. Now he might have thought in his mind, he won. Like I just punked him in front of his wife. But I thought it was hilarious because in my mind, I'm like, you mentally, I just beat you. You were looking for a confrontation. I don't know what kind of day you were having, but I was able to diffuse that. But me in my younger days, I would have said, I'm looking at you. What do you mean who I'm looking at? And that would have turned into what? And then the cops come, they arrest us, right? What are you guys fighting for? Because he looked at me. How silly does that sound? It's what? Like, I tell these kids, do you want to go back and tell your parents, I got in trouble in school, you have a disorderly conduct, you got suspended, the police were involved, you have community service, all because someone said something to you? When you break it down for them and let them understand what is the root of the problem? When you realize it's so microscopic, it's so small, there's hey, did this kid beat you up? Did he hit? So what do you care for? Who cares what Joe Blow thinks down the street? If that kid's so tough, let him do it. But you don't do it because that's not what you're about. And that's how we use the boxing. Through boxing and other martial arts, say Brazilian jiu-jitsu, where when you're training, when the kid's training, you have a very good idea of who you are and who you're not. Like when you're Absolutely. training and sparring, you know that I have a good left hook, I have a good jab, or my jab's pretty crappy, my footwork's good, my footwork's bad. But after you're training for a while, you know exactly who you are. So if someone says, hey, you're a bleep or you're that, you're very confident to just to walk away. Boxing, jiu-jitsu, other martial arts, it makes you control your ego because your ego gets batted down because you train and you get smashed on the mat or you get smashed in the ring. And like right. your ego is to the point where you're like, yeah, you can call me whatever. I don't care, man. Martial arts, boxing, it's just such a great avenue to control your ego. And you're confident enough to totally diffuse the situation and walk away where it's so easy to get in the fight but it's so hard to walk away. And uh, now, now move on to a part of it we call share your secrets. What's the biggest challenge you ever faced? Obviously the reading was a big challenge for me when I was younger. And I, I, one of the biggest challenges I face now is really, is when you're trying to do the right thing, realizing that sometimes the results won't be what you want them to be. It's a major challenge for me. I'm in this township where I'm at right now. And I had a very, and going, still going through a very difficult time with the township. It allowed me to do what I'm doing out of my home. It's been an unbelievable uphill battle for me. They've really made it very difficult. So the challenge of that is just keeping your composure. It's very challenging when you're fighting the law and they're using technicalities against you to do certain things. And you're like, listen, I'm just trying to help. You're trying to take that away from me. But why? What's your reasoning? Like, why are you doing those things? And that's very challenging because I'm doing the right thing. You know, I put my heart behind something and I give 110% behind something. And working with these children is my passion. So the challenge is being able to do what I'm doing in an area where it's 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 not um, received as well from the authority position. Because they think of boxing as a combat, there's been a disturbance. So I've gotten things like variance issues and cease and desist orders and all kinds of stuff in order to stop me from doing what I'm doing, which is why ABC did that for me. Channel 6, they did that because it's an uphill battle, man, but I'm up for the challenge. If somebody would wonder why politicians have maybe have low poll numbers, who you are trying to help kids and they're trying to get you on permits and zoning, <laughs> you would think they'd be knocking obstacles out of your way to help more kids. <laughs> anyway, they, they, yeah, they keep yeah. fighting a good fight there. Looking back, what failures of yours set you up for future success? Do you have, say, a favorite failure that propelled you forward more so than any? One of my failures that propelled me, it was just, I used to just touching back on that Glenn Mills. At that point in time, it was either, listen, you're going to get out of here and you're going to go the same direction you were going and you're going to change your life. And ironically, like I said, one of the counselors there told me, he's like, you're really hard-headed and you should really find a job that you could 
be like your own boss. And I worked for Miller Brewing for 20 years. I retired from there in, in July, but I worked for Miller Brewing for 20 years and I was on the road all the time and I was able to do my own thing and I was very successful at it. I, I loved the job. It was a great job, union job. I took that road and just decided I was going to do something different because I knew at that point it's either I'm going to survive or I'm not going to survive. I'm going to go, I'm going to go to jail from here or I'm not going to go to jail from here. I had a daughter coming home from Glen Mills when I was a teenager. I had a daughter when I was 17 years old. And it was like, listen, I'm going to be here for my child. If I'm not here for my daughter, I'm going to go to jail. And I just decided I wasn't going to let her be who I was. I didn't want her to uh, face that. So having those challenges and being that young, I had to make a decision. And that changed the course of my life because of her, I decided to go the right way. But if that didn't happen, I, I couldn't tell you today where I would be. If you look at any person's influence story, there's like a pivot point. There's a fork in the road. And that basically determines the course of your life. There's certain moments in your life that determine the next 15, 20 years. And uh, that looked Absolutely. like that was one of them and you made the right call. So that's awesome. How about with all the stuff you got going on when you need to clear your mind or recharge your body? What do you do? <laughs> So my favorite thing to do, it's funny, is um, I like to go to the gym and sit in the sauna and a whirlpool. Sitting in the sauna and a whirlpool puts me in a state of relaxation. My muscles are usually really tight. I'm stressed out. I can really just get it. Because the stress reliever for me is not so much of the boxing, because I'm doing that all the time, to just relax in my household. If I'm in my house laying in my bed, relaxing, my kids are coming and jumping and doing so things or whatever. So you're not really recharging. You're in dad mode then. But for me to relax and completely just be my own element, going to the gym, sitting in the sauna for about a half hour in a whirlpool, that recharges me. It's like my battery's all over again. I'm ready to go. Is there a book that influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? <laughs> funny. I said the book would be Who Moved My Cheese? The book is a really quick, funny read book. Uh, you use it all aspects of your life. But the bottom line is we have to adapt to change in the world. The world changes at all times. And most of us are stuck in the same routine. And when things change, we don't know how to adapt to them. And the book teaches you how people and mice, where they adapt to different situations. So as life goes on, if you're stuck in the 80s, then you're going to be stuck in the 80s. The 90s comes. And that, right? So what I was doing 10 years ago today wouldn't work. 10 years ago, we wouldn't be sitting on Zoom, but we're on Zoom now. You got to adapt to the situation. My mom told me years ago, I need to learn how to type on a computer. I'm like, I hate computer. I'm not typing on a computer. I'll never type on a computer. Everything's technology on a computer. So being able just to adapt to situations, and it just teaches you about adapting and life evolving and you just being on board with it. Oh, man, that's great. You go back. It's like Darwin, change or die. You know what I mean? Stuck in the 80s, we'd be here with parachute pants on. You know what I mean? <laughs> MC <laughs> Hammer pants on. Pastel colors. <laughs> and definitely not a good look on me. I know I can't pull that off. Oh, me uh, either. <laughs> about most high achievers like yourself usually either have a morning routine or a nighttime routine. What does either like the first 60 minutes or the last 60 minutes of your day look like? How do you set up your day or how do you think? So every day when I wake up, ironically, this is something that actually, believe it or not, my dad and I have a good relationship now. He would tell me, you need to wake up. The early bird gets the warm. So I wake up every morning and I, I, I meditate and I call my meditating praying. I talk to myself out loud. I talk to God about different things um, that I want to do. I just ask for, you know, forgiveness, things I'm doing. So ritual I do, I get up, I go downstairs and, and then my gym, I turn the lights on and so on and so forth or whatever. And it's like my ritual, I'll go through and as I'm straightening up and clean up for the next person to come in. I'm really talking and meditating to my, no one's up, but I'm up in there early in the morning, just taking care of things and get myself together. I just need that time before my kids get up. Absolutely. You got to be your best first before you, you give your best to other people. What time of day do you usually wake up? I usually wake up around four. Four. That's, yeah. I felt that coming. Yeah. I knew, yeah. You, you didn't look like you sleep in. That's great. What's your personal definition of success? My personal thing of success is it, it, my, some people say, hey, you want to be a millionaire, be a billionaire, right? All these things, whatever. But to me, success is 
you set out to do something and you can do it, I mean, that's successful to me. Or someone wakes up and they say, hey, I, I just want to get a job and to be able to take care of my family. If they can do that, they're successful. It, it, me, if I wake up every day and I'm like, I do what I love to do, that's success. I, I literally wake up every day and I don't do anything I don't want to do. It's not about the money. It's about the fact that the freedom of having that time, to me, you can't get time back. So to me, a success is you're waking up and you are achieving what you want to achieve. You're doing what you want to do. How much more successful can you be? If you give me a job and you tell me, hey, I want you to shovel Calvinor, but I'll pay you a million dollars a year. I might last two months. It's, it's, it's not going to do it for me because the money won't drive me. But if you tell me, hey, I'll pay you $100,000 and you can box it, right? I'm on it all day long because at the end of the day, it's what I love to do. That's being successful to me. What's the most exciting project you're working on? The most exciting project I'm working on right now is actually a non a nonprofit called Momentum with myself, a gentleman named Jeff and my other uh, partner, Dominic. We are working on, it's like a, a Boys and Girls Club, YMCA slash. We are putting together a nonprofit, which we've already started called Momentum, uh, which is going to have a boxing gym, a culinary school, art studio, music studio, basketball courts, mentoring, counseling. We're going to be involved with children, trouble and going to their schools and talking to their counselors and IEPs and giving them a place to go. We want to have a an area where all kids can come to no matter what's going on in their life and feel a part of something. Walk in somewhere, they can do box and culinary art and just have it, and but be more involved with them. So when that kid has a problem, he wants to go to an interview, we'll teach him how to dress, how to talk. We'll help people with their hygiene. We'll help people just being able to succeed with, with grades and tutoring. So our big plan is to open up uh, a nonprofit called Momentum in every single state. That's our ultimate goal and what we're working on now. When can you see the first location opening up? So we, we would like to have it open up within definitely within like next year or two, we've already, thank God, we've gotten some legal representation. We we have meetings all the time. Twice a week, we have meetings. We're putting together our executive board. We're moving, you know, you know, pretty fast. Once we have everything all together, we're going to present it to basically every township in the area first to get the first one started. And then from there, it'll be a snowball of things that'll happen. It's always hard getting the first one started, but we're very confident Three the same vision, three different ways, and we're coming together. And it's going to be a very successful, I believe the world needs it. We look at the murder rate and Philadelphia, two to three people a day are dying. There's kids are getting struck by bullets. There's nowhere for them to go. I can go on and on about the, the areas in this area, like the Narsetown and so on and so forth, to have nothing for the children to do. They want these kids to have trouble. What are they going to do? Not every kid does football, basketball, boxing, or whatever. Hey, maybe they want to do art. What about these kids that are growing up that their parents work two jobs and the kids got to cook for their siblings? Maybe we can teach them how to cook meals that are good for them or not burn down the house because they, they don't know how to use a stove. So we're putting that together and I'm, we're very passionate about that. And I'm very excited to, for that to come to fruition. That is awesome. That goes back to what you said about with time, free time that kids can spend it the wrong way, or you fill it with positive stuff and teaching them and how to cook, how to box, how to get ready for a job interview. That's God's work there. So really, congratulations and best of luck with that. How about what type of values do you try to pass on to your kids? That life is unfair. Unfortunately, life is unfair. And, and you have to be able to adapt to how life is itself. Talking about the book that I like, right? Is the values of is listen, you have integrity, you have confidence, you have this, you have that. But the bottom line is without all of those things, right? At the end of the day, people need to understand situations that you're in, that's your life, right? You can be in a situation where I can be around amongst uh, a bunch of millionaires. I need to know how to act and perform, be a certain way. I can be around my friends and be a certain way. So adapting to the situations that you're in, the values. When you're in school, no one said being in school might not be fun, but you don't got to be the class clown. You don't got to be the silly kid. You end up working for, the class clowns are working for the guy who's actually paying attention in class. So just teaching kids the values of, look, 
how life changes, you need to adapt to that. You need to understand that life keeps changing. And you need to evolve with that no matter what it is. If you're angry, find something to can control that anger. If you're happy, enjoy what you're doing. If you don't like what's going on with your parents, talk to them. If you're feeling feelings of suicide and all these different things, understand there's people to help you and just adapting to those particular things and gravitating to the right people. I'm just trying to teach people the value of, listen, there's something for everybody. You just got to find You mentioned just like core concepts, like the values, being able to adapt to change, grit, evolve. Things like that are just so important to teach because how many kids do you know or any even of adults that have a lot of talent? Maybe they can get 1450 on their SATs, but first time they get punched in the face, they fall down. They can't get back up. They can't take a punch. They first time adversity hits them, they crumble. What good is all that if you can't adapt to change, evolve, have that grit to show up in the ring, grind? That's great stuff, man. Keep going. All right, getting back to boxing, a couple of fun questions. In their prime. Mike Tyson versus Muhammad Ali, both in their prime. They go 12 <laughs> rounds. Who wins? It's a hard one, right? So I'll get they go they go 12 rounds. If they go 12 rounds, Muhammad Ali. Okay. I say just say they boxed. They boxed in their prime. Ali in his prime, Tyson in his prime. How do you think it plays out? Oh man. So styles make fights, right? So I, I'm trying to be too technical, but now styles make fights. So Mike Tyson is great in the forefront of a fight. What people realize is Mike Tyson's five foot 10 and Ali's six foot four, six foot five, right? So, so the bottom line is if Muhammad Ali can keep Mike Tyson at the end of the punch, it's impossible, virtually impossible for him to touch him. People didn't realize when Lance Lewis fought Mike Tyson, what people didn't realize is all Lance had to do was stand back. He can't punch you. If you're in really close, He's close to you. If you stand back, your his reach not long enough. You need to miss for him to be able to touch you. It's virtually impossible. I have a 64-inch reach. You have a 50-inch reach. You can't reach me unless you miss. Muhammad Ali was very good on his feet. He was very unorthodox. He did things like dance and move around, which frustrates boxers. Believe it or not, Muhammad Ali only did about a one, two, three punch, a one, two, three, two, and got on the ropes, made you miss because of his footwork. Mike Tyson is very explosive, comes straight in at you and really gets you with his aggressiveness. But he's a straightforward boxer. He's coming very slick, but he's a, his aggression is like, like a pit bull. So I believe that if Muhammad Ali could keep Mike Tyson off of him, I believe that he would win. But I believe that if Mike Tyson can get past Muhammad Ali's slickness, he would win. So I'd I have to say, I know this is going to sound horrible <laughs> to most people, but I, I, if I was a betting man, I bet my money on Mike Tyson. I really would. And yes. And I, and I am a Muhammad Ali fanatic. If you look at my gym, I have memorials of Muhammad Ali all over my gym. Um, I love Muhammad Ali. But I just believe that people like Joe Frazier, they, they caught Ali with some good punches at times. And I believe that if he got caught with one of the explosive punches, I believe that he could, he could drop him. But if it went 12 rounds, I believe Ali would win. So if Ali could hang in there for the beginning onslaught when Tyson comes up, like if you said like a pit bull, it'd be him. But if it ended early, it would be Tyson. With Tyson. Uh, yes, yes. I, I know you're going to get a lot of slack about that. Yeah, I remember when Tyson first came out, like you couldn't even reach for the popcorn. Like you, right. like, like you blink and like it's gone. The guy's on the floor. It was crazy. The, the, wor the worst 29 bucks you ever spent back yeah, then, yeah, right? Yeah, pay-per-view <laughs> and like you go, oh, it's starting. And you look and so, it's over. Like, yes. what happened? Crazy stuff. Which boxing trainer or boxer if you could spend a day with alive or dead, who would you pick? Spend a day talking, training, boxing, working, boxing, anyone. Who would it be? Ooh, man. I think I, if I could spend the day with someone, I would spend the day with, with Customato. I think I, would, I think I would spend a day with Cus. Tell the people about Customato who, who are not familiar with. So Cus was Mike Tyson's trainer. He's the one who pretty much saved Mike Tyson's life. And the reason why I say that I want to spend a day with him is because 
he was able to bring something out of Mike Tyson um, and teach Mike about things like, hey, Mike is good. It's not perfect. He was big on doing very small things perfectly. So it's better to have five things in your archive that you can do 100% than have 20 that you do okay. So if you ever look at Mike Tyson's fights, it's hard to explain, but you'll notice that most of his combinations were all exactly pretty much the same. He just altered where he was a slip roll, come uppercut hook or whatever, but he never really did anything so crazy fancy. He was just so good at exactly what he did. So if you're good at the one, two, three, two, why do you do the one, two, three, two, six, right? So he would say, Mike, it's good, but it's not perfect. Mike, it's good, it's not perfect. And I think the concept of boxing being repetitive, a trainer, a coach, whatever they call themselves, what you're doing is you're really bringing out the best of someone. That's why styles make fights. If Dundee and Cuss would switch fighters, they would be two different fighters. So I think that when you're with a trainer, your job is to bring the best out of somebody. Example, when I say a pit bull, right? A pit bull is a pit bull. Now, a pit bull on a leash is one way. Off leash can be another way. And I use that as a dramatics of a, of a dog. So a pit bull, when you let a pit bull off his leash, right? If they ever attack, or any dog, right? Because I love pit bulls. If they ever attack, most dogs attack the same exact way every time. So if they go for the throat the first time, they always go. They don't go for the leg next time. They go for what they know. I think in life, when you teach someone something, if you teach them what they know and embed that in them, it becomes something so robotic that they can just do it over and over again. I think that Cus was a mastermind of saying, this works, perfect this, and then move on. Whereas though we are so impatient now, even myself as a coach, I'm teaching someone something. If they can't do it, I'm like, okay, wait, let's do it over again. Let's try this. Let's try that. Instead of just saying, wait, wait, let's do this the right way. Let's figure it out. So I think that learning from him, be the patience of learning something from him. I think I would learn the, the, the value of patience and learning. You need to make it work for your fighter, not for yourself. And I think that I could learn that from someone like him, just watching his style of fight, watching him on YouTube. I study a lot about Mike Tyson and, and training with the coaches. I study more about coaches than I do about the fighters. Mm-hmm. And he had that, that attribute that I really liked. Like the greats master the basics. If you look at what Tyson did, it wasn't that complicated. It was some basic mm-hmm. patterns. Even you said to Ali, you said Ali had some very basic, he had great footwork and some basic punch combinations. Maybe the two greatest of all time. You said something about boxing. You see it in jujitsu. You even see it in other martial arts. Like Bruce Lee had that famous quote. I'm not scared of the person who practiced 10,000 different kicks. Yes. I'm a scared of the person who practiced one kick 10,000 times. Correct. Absolutely. And in jujitsu, one of the, some people think the greatest grappler of all time in jujitsu is Hodger Gracie. And uh, he just, he had an article just a few months ago. He goes, there's thousands of moves in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He goes, I'm good at about eight moves. Like literally right. eight. He does out of the unlimited jiu-jitsu moves, say 2,000 jiu-jitsu moves. Hodger Gracie's good in about eight of them. And he right. just mastered them to the point where he can do them from different angles, different positions. And he can always get you to that one or two moves. And it's all you need, man. It's a phenomenal uh, thought process. Thanks for sharing that. Wrapping up here, two last questions. You spoke about your grandfather and your mom growing up. If you could go back to that dinner table in your house when you're about 10 years old with your mom and your grandfather, what would you want to tell them? Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to evolve to be the person that I am. Thank you for not babying me and let me come and become the man that I am. The values that I've learned from them directly, indirectly are so invaluable. Just my mom let me see the struggle. My mom let me see, hey, listen, I don't have the money. My grandfather used to say to me, nobody's going to do it for you. One time I was telling my grandfather how 
I say, I wake up every day and I go to work and take care of my kids. I take care of my wife. I do, and I'm running down all these things. And he's sitting in this chair. And I said, aren't you proud of me? And he turned to me and said, that's your problem. Your problem is you want me to be proud of you for something you're supposed to do. You're supposed to get up every day and go to work. You're supposed to take care of your kids. You're supposed to be a good husband. We're so used to doing nothing that when you do something, it seems extraordinary, right? If your kid gets an A, you're like over the top, but you're like, what are you supposed to get? I am very happy you did that, that you gave 100%, right? My sons, I teach them, I don't care when, lose, or draw. 100% is what I want, effort. I can't teach you effort. My my mother and my grandfather let me know that your effort is everything. The result is not everything, it's your effort. You give me 110% effort and you get to see, I'm okay with that. So I'm very thankful that they did not shelter me in the sense of, I wasn't expecting to fall or fail. They made sure I fell on my face and let me figure out how to get out of it myself. And that's just the way they were. And, and if they didn't do that, I think that I would be a lot different now. Wow. Last question. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? It's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. It's not about how you start. It's how you finish. That is, I think, the perfect spot to end an awesome conversation Malik Harris, first off, I'd like to thank you for your time. Thank you. Absolutely, for the, thank you. Uh, incredible, incredible work you're doing. You're doing God's work. Thank you for just being such a positive force in the community, helping so many kids and just spreading the good word. And dude, I wish you nothing but continued success with you and uh, your nonprofit momentum. And if people were looking for you and King's Boxing Corner online, where can they? So I use uh, my Instagram. So. It's just easier to just contact me directly through social media, King's Corner Boxing on Instagram. And then they can just do my name or King's Corner Boxing on Facebook. But Malik, M-A-L-I-Q, last name H-A-R-I-S uh, on Facebook and Instagram, just a King's Corner Boxing. They can find me on there. Always send me an email or a direct message from there. And then hopefully I can get back to them and link up with them. Awesome. So Facebook or Instagram, King's Corner Boxing or your name, Malik Harris. And then if they wanted to email me, it'd be info at kingscornerboxing.com. Info at kingscornerboxing.com. That's perfect. Malik Harris, I wish you nothing but success. You are one of the good ones, man. And uh, dude, I, we're rooting for you. Keep going. Keep fighting a good fight. Hey, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much.